Oxygenation Strategies in COVID-19 by Dr. Allison Dalton from the University of Chicago. In December of 2019, a novel respiratory illness, COVID-19, was first identified and reported. As of June 1, 2020, there have been over 6.2 million cases and 370,000 deaths worldwide, including approximately 1.8 million cases and more than 100,000 deaths in the United States from COVID-19. COVID-19 infections have been reported in 188 countries. Case fatality has been reported as high as 16.2%, with a case fatality rate of 5.8% in the U.S. 5 to 20% of patients with COVID-19 require critical care services, and early reports note that 71 to 88% of patients may require intubation and mechanical ventilation. For patients requiring intensive care unit ICU admission, mortality increases to 26 to 62%. COVID-19, the disease caused by SARS-CoV-2, is characterized by fever, chills, malaise, fatigue, chest pain, shortness of breath, headache, and GI symptoms, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. COVID-19 can also result in acute kidney injury, coagulation abnormalities, and cytokine storm. In more severe cases, COVID-19 is associated with significant hypoxia secondary to viral pneumonia and acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. Laboratory hallmarks include lymphopenia, elevations in inflammatory markers, for example, CRP, ferritin, IL-6, elevated coagulation studies, for example, D-dimer, and abnormal troponin levels. Radiographic studies reveal bilateral patchy opacities with ground glass appearance on CT scan. COVID-19-related hypoxia is associated with an increased alveolar arterial AA oxygen gradient. Common causes of increased AA gradient include ventilation perfusion, VQ mismatch, and intrapulmonary shunt. Patients with predominant shunt physiology will not have significant increases in saturations or PaO2 with delivery of supplemental oxygen. The lack of response to oxygen may trigger a lower threshold for early intubation and mechanical ventilation. Patients with predominantly VQ mismatch will respond to higher levels of FiO2, which can allow for treatment with non-invasive oxygenation and ventilation. Initial management of critically ill patients with COVID-19 within our institution, as well as many others, called for early intubation for hypoxia related to acute respiratory distress syndrome. Intubation allows for more precise delivery of oxygen and control of tidal volumes and respiratory pressures. However, intubation and mechanical ventilation have drawbacks, including need for sedation to promote ventilator synchrony, sedation-related hypotension, potential need for paralysis, ventilator-associated infections, and ventilator-induced lung injury, VILI. In addition, intubation is considered an aerosol-generating procedure, which may increase risks of viral transmission to those present and performing the procedure. 
while randomized controlled studies are lacking in COVID-19-related acute respiratory distress syndrome, multiple strategies of non-invasive oxygen delivery and ventilation have been investigated prior to the appearance of SARS-CoV-2. For patients with moderate to severe non-hypercarbic respiratory failure, PaO2 less than 200 millimeters of mercury, high-flow nasal cannula, HFNC, has been shown to prevent intubation and be associated with decreased ICU and 90-day mortality. Similarly, non-invasive ventilation strategies have been associated with decreased rate of intubation and lower ICU mortality in hypoxic respiratory failure. For patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome who ultimately fail non-invasive ventilation, NIV, and require intubation, there has been no difference in mortality for those who experienced early versus late intubation. Given concerns for potential need for rationing of resources, for example, ventilators, ICU beds, and high morbidity and mortality in intubated and mechanically ventilated patients, we pivoted our strategy to include the use of non-invasive ventilation and oxygenation modalities in late March 2020. All patients requiring supplemental oxygen greater than 6 liters per minute LPM, were transferred to the ICU where patients were started on high-flow nasal cannula. Patients with continued hypoxia but without signs or symptoms of respiratory distress received a trial of alternative non-invasive ventilation, for example, helmet, CPAP, BiPAP. For those with a P to F ratio of less than 150, we encourage patients to position themselves prone to improve oxygenation and attempt to avoid intubation. Patients with subjective shortness of breath or who had clinical signs or symptoms of respiratory distress were intubated and started on mechanical ventilation, which often subsequently required high levels of sedation, paralysis, and proning. The mortality outcomes in our intubated patients have been statistically similar whether intubated early or after a trial of high-flow nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation, as has been previously reported by Thilly and others. In our experience, we were able to postpone or in some instances avoid intubation with the use of helmet ventilation. The helmet system consists of a polyvinyl chloride, latex-free hood and neck seal. The hood is placed over the patient's head and connected to a ventilator or high-flow oxygen medical air supply via the inspiratory port. A PEEP valve is placed on the expiratory port to provide positive pressure to prevent against atelectasis. A viral filter also may be placed on the expiratory side to prevent viral transmission in respiratory illnesses. The helmet system also may decrease the risk of transmission by providing a barrier to droplet spread. A potential disadvantage of using non-invasive ventilation and high-flow nasal cannula is the increased risk of aerosolization of particles. Flow rates as high as 60 liters per minute utilized by high-flow nasal cannula have resulted in limited use in some institutions because of concern for transmission of viral infection. The use of high-flow nasal cannula at 60 liters per minute 
does generate more aerosolization than high-flow nasal cannula at 10 liters per minute. Studies have shown that even at 60 liters per minute, the degree of aerosolization may be equivalent to or less than the risk of aerosolization with simple face mask, non-rebreather, or venturi masks. In order to decrease viral spread, the patient may wear a surgical mask over high-flow nasal cannula. Less data is available regarding aerosolization with the use of BiPAP, CPAP, and helmet ventilation, but risk can be minimized by using expiratory filters and maintaining an adequate seal. Given the use of high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation in our COVID cohort units, multiple strategies were employed to minimize the risk of virus transmission. Two floors of our institution were converted into negative pressure environments for COVID-19 patients. Given concerns of aerosolization with the use of multiple devices within the ICU, staff working within the cohort units were encouraged to wear N95, N100, or PAPR along with eye shields while in the unit, even outside of patient rooms. Occupational medicine enacted widespread fit testing for reusable half-facepiece respirators with P100 filters for extended use in the cohort units, as well as for other aerosolizing procedures, for example intubations in the OR, which has led to preservation of N95 masks. With the emergence of a novel respiratory infection, we have been challenged to reassess our typical management of acute respiratory distress syndrome. Due to potential and actual shortages of ventilators and ICU beds throughout the world, patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome have been treated with high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation with some success in avoiding intubation and mechanical ventilation and preventing the need to ration scarce resources during a global pandemic.